It's time to take the ice with the That's Hockey podcast presented by Trust PR. Hear the fun, chaotic stories from behind the scenes that make you laugh, shrug your shoulders and say, that's hockey, baby. The That's Hockey podcast. Now here's your host, Matt Trust. Welcome back to another edition of the That's Hockey podcast. It is presented by Trust PR, and I have been looking forward to recording this episode all day long. Pleased to be joined by, he is the newest broadcaster of the new expansion team coming into the NHL out of Seattle, the Kraken, new broadcaster, Everett Fitzhugh. Thank you so much for joining us this afternoon. Yeah, Matty, thanks for having me, man. It's uh, good to see you again. I know we... uh, we connected a few years ago in D.C., and I'm glad to see that your uh, your careers take it off, and, and you've had some good success in Hershey with our boy Zach Fish. So good to uh, good to be talking to you here on an official basis. It's hard to believe too that it's already coming up on two years since yeah. that night we met in D.C. So like that was a pretty special night for both of us, to be honest. Probably much more so you than me. Uh, so. First, on, on my end, it was uh, I had just started working for the Bears full-time. I started the day after Labor Day going into the 18-19 season. So with the way that the schedule falls early in September, you have your rookie camps, your showcases, yep. and they lead into NHL preseason. So I was only on the job full-time for about three weeks or so when I got to go to the first Capitals preseason game and get to network with uh, some members of the Capitals organization uh, and they have an unbelievable front office and that's where we met where you were actually broadcasting that night on the Caps radio network. Yeah that was uh, my my first ever NHL game and it was um, it was something that obviously you never forget. You're never going to forget your first NHL game. Um, you know, through introductions of Zach and a couple of other people, I was able to meet John Walton uh, the year prior to that. And he uh, kept in touch and he actually gave me a phone call one day, called my office. It was right after the Capitals won the, uh, the Stanley Cup. And, uh, you know, he, he was asking, you know, my, my day with the Cups coming up and we're planning on doing something at Miami over in Oxford, which is where he went to school, um, and, and wanted to know if the Cyclones would be interested in, in, in partnering in some kind of way. Uh, unfortunately, it didn't happen. Uh, it didn't work out where we were able to do that. But in that same conversation, he says, also, I was wondering if you'd like to – to join me for the broadcast, the, the preseason game for the Capitals and the Bruins. And, and I'm thinking, yeah, I, I can I can do a period or I can join you for, for a color analyst, no big deal. And, and he says, oh, no, you're, you're going to be doing the entire game. So um, once I pick my jaw up off the floor and uh, regain my composure, you know, I uh, the preparation started and, and you know, t- to be able to do that game, right after the Capitals win the Stanley Cup. I, I know it's preseason, but the first game in the building 
uh, after the Capitals win the Stanley Cup was very, very special. Um, the Capitals lost 4-2 that game, but I was able to add a Matt Niskanen and a Riley Barber goal call uh, to my, my highlight reel, so I can't be too upset about that. Um, but, I mean, it was an amazing experience and an amazing opportunity, and it was something that, that really helped me um, see where my, my skills were and see where I was in terms of my development as a broadcaster. And going into it, too, I mean, even though it's a preseason game, it's your first NHL game. So if you're not nervous, I don't think you're human going into that. So for you, did it take uh, a couple stoppages? Did it take a period, a TV timeout to, to kind of flush out all those nerves and just kind of relax and come back down to earth a bit? I think it took about 60 minutes to flush out all those nerves in terms of puck drop to the end of the game. Um, no, it was uh, – obviously there were some nerves there. And, and, again, a lot of people will tell you that it was um, – you know, it's just preseason, but that's your first NHL game. So, for me, that was like game seven of the Stanley Cup final. Uh, that was, to this day, the biggest game of my life. So um, I'm going to break out one of the old uh, cliches in sports. You prepare for game seven of the Cup final just like you would game 20 in the middle of December. Um, I, I still went in, did my roster prep, did all of my notes and all of that. Um, so my, my preparation was the same. But it, it during the game, it did take me about a period um, to get real comfortable. I, I think the one thing uh, with it being preseason, the rosters were so long, and that was the year that the Capitals and the Bruins each split their team because they participated in that, uh, that tournament uh, over in China, I believe. So not knowing who was going to be on the team until a couple of days earlier. So I'd been studying 60, 50 guys per team, and then to finally get that down to 20, I did have a little bit of trouble with some of the names and the numbers early on, but, um, you know, a quick adjustment at the intermission, and, and it was off to the races. So, um, you know, I, I treated that game. It reminded me a lot of, you know, you work in the AHL, so when you see a lot of these prospects getting a preseason game, a lot of OHL or, or CHL junior guys getting a preseason game to test their skills and see where their skills match up to other players, that's how I treated that game. And when I went back to Cincinnati – you know, my broadcasting that season was a little bit sharper. My PR was a little bit sharper because it, it gave me that confidence to know that I'm not as far off as, as I may think I am. And I think I left that game, you know, feeling very, very confident and believing that I could do this at the NHL level. And I wanted to ask you, was there a moment, was it that preseason game? Was it any time before or after that where maybe you had that moment where you thought, I, I can do this in the National Hockey League. You know, so the dream was always to get to the NHL. That that was that was, that is and, and and has always been the dream. But it was that preseason game because I left that game not in an arrogant or a cocky way, but I left that game t telling myself you can do this. You can be an NHL broadcaster. And I actually found that it was a little bit easier calling an NHL game than it was uh, an ECHL game. It's a little bit sharper. I mean, anytime that you have the best players in the world doing what they do, you know, 
Um, you can read plays better. You can see things better. You know that Niskanen's going to make that pass to Backstrom and he's not going to fumble it at the blue line or overstep it or whatever the case may be. So, you know, the ECHL is a development league and, and all the leagues that I've been into are, are development leagues. But whenever you have an opportunity to watch the best players in the world at what they do, the game's a lot smoother and, and to a point where it's a fast game, but from the broadcast booth, it slows down a lot. It's almost like watching NASCAR. I could never drive 180 miles an hour on the street, but watching them do it, it just looks a lot smoother and a lot easier. And for me, that's what I took away from that game. It was a lot easier for me to do. It was a lot more smooth and a lot more flow than what I was used to. And I think it allowed me to ease myself and settle down a bit into it. And when I left, the, uh, when I left that game, like I said, I, I said, I can do this. Um, you know, I, I am closer to the NHL than I maybe previously thought I was. Yeah, it, you know, it, it's really interesting because, like, you touch on, like, the, that pacing, that flow. And I think one of the most interesting pieces of advice I, I've ever heard when it came to play-by-play -play is someone asked, so who's your favorite announcer? Who do you like listening to? And you say yeah. a random name, whether it's Doc Demrick, John Forslund, there's so many great ones out there at both the yeah. national level, but for uh, even for a team like Joe Beninati for the Capitals, Jim Jackson in Philadelphia. And they said, go back and transcribe word for word everything they say for, say, a period and then go back and read it with them. So turn the game on and read back word for word of his play-by-play -play so you're immediately able to get a sense of that pacing. So like, I feel like at, at the NHL level, as soon as you get that pacing down, you're able to go and think, okay, maybe I'm not talking too much. I'm not talking too fast or too slow. You're able to just like establish that rhythm and balance. So it, it's interesting. Like, I love yeah. that you touch on that. So. Yeah, and, and, and in the ECHL, we do this job a lot of times without color analysts. So um, I haven't had a color guy for five years since I've been here. So it, it's been a, a three-hour, one-man show four days a week for the last five years. But um, you're right. Uh, you know, anyone who knows me knows that um, I, I'm not short on words. I'm not short on volume. And I'm not short on excitement and passion. So um, being able to, to share that with the color analyst and, and, and to have to be able to, um, you know, incorporate another aspect and another piece into your broadcasting that was something that you know again took me a bit to learn because I, I felt bad I was talking over a couple of guys um in the beginning but that's because I wasn't used to having a color analyst I had one in college I had one in Youngstown and then at the time it'd been three years so what was that 72 times three you know 200 and some odd games by myself um, you know, having to learn how to share that booth again um, was was a, a, a challenge that I overcame pretty quickly as well. That's awesome. So take me back to the beginning. So you have uh, a really neat upbringing, Detroit native. Whenever you grow up close by to a city that is a major sports town, there is no shortage of major league sports at all. I mean, between the Lions, the Tigers, between football and um, football and baseball, and then with the Pistons and the Red Wings, one of the most storied franchises in the National Hockey yeah. League. Uh, was it difficult growing up to uh, decide which game you were going to have on at any given moment? 
You know, it, it wasn't difficult for a couple of reasons. Um, number one, we didn't have, I didn't have cable TV growing up. So I was at the mercy of whatever game was on local TV that night. So um, all, well, I, I, with the exception of football, obviously the NFL is on Fox and CBS, but you know, at any one given time, depending on if the Tigers, the Wings or the Pistons were on TV, that's the game that I would watch. But I was an avid sports fan growing up. Um, you know, my, my mom, I drove her crazy because I could name every arena, every team, every coach. I could probably name your leading scorer. I could probably name, uh, you know, your, your top six if I had to. Like, I was a really big fan of sports growing up, of all sports. My favorite sport growing up was actually baseball. And then to this day, I'm still a big baseball fan. So um, I played baseball my whole life growing up. So I, being in Detroit, when you, you have the likes of Ernie Harwell and, and Ken Daniels and George Blaha, some great broadcasters that you can listen to on a nightly basis. I mean, it, it was really, really cool to be a part of, of a city that had such a proud sports tradition. And, you know, I became a hockey fan right around the time the Wings were winning those back-to-back -back cups. So when you're, what, seven, eight years old, you're a front runner. So I was lucky that I was living in Detroit at a time when the wings were on, on top of the hockey world. So definitely I, I think being from Detroit and, and, and being a fan of Detroit sports really helped mold my, my fandom because, you know, D Detroit's a very hardworking, passionate town. So you can't help but be a sports fan coming from there. When you have uh, Ernie Harwell as uh, pretty much the soundtrack of your summer there in Detroit, I mean, I think that by itself has to be pretty special because he was one that, I mean, just on the baseball side of it, set the bar so high. Yeah. Just in terms of just his wordsmith, I mean, he was just a, a genius in how he would, it, from a consistency aspect, but from a unique aspect, just to draw people in. Yeah, and, and that's one thing, you know, I remember countless nights growing up at, you know, from as young as six, I want to say, um, falling asleep to Ernie Harwell narrating baseball games every night. Um, he was the soundtrack of my summer, just like millions of other uh, Detroiters and Michiganders over the last you know, 80 some odd years up until his passing early in, in the 2000s. But, um, you know, he, I think, still is the gold standard when it comes to broadcasting in Detroit, when it comes to, to being a broadcaster in the city of Detroit. So um, he was a great person to listen to growing up. I loved his, his verbiage, his phrasing, the things he said. Um, he was really, really inspirational and very easy to listen to. And I think when, when talking about your favorite broadcasters, I mean, I, I've got so many guys that I love listening to, but the biggest thing I like to judge broadcasters on is how easy are they to listen to? Ernie Harwell was one of those guys who he could read me the phone book. I, I would, I would gladly have Ernie Harwell read me the washing machine manual because he was just that soothing and that comforting and that good at what he did. It was, uh, but for a, a strikeout looking, he was uh, caught window shopping, I think. Caught window shopping. He, uh, he stood there like the house on the side of the road and watched it go by. Like that, that's, I'm getting, I, got, I just got goosebumps uh, thinking about that. So that's, yes, that, that is who, you know, I, I like to model a lot of, 
you know, that pacing and, and that passion after. And he's so special too, because so it was 42 years he spent with yep. the Detroit Tigers. And he's the only broadcaster, at least as far as we know, in the history of baseball that has ever been traded yes. for a player. It's I, unbelievable. I he for a player and a bag of bats, I believe, and a bat rack. They, so, they sent a player over and they sent a bat rack, I believe. It, it's unbelievable. So the, the story is it's early in the 1940s, and Ernie yeah. Harlow is the voice in double A. So the name of this team uh, was uh, the Atlanta Crackers, which uh, falls under the category of things that you wouldn't touch with the 15,000-foot pole in 2020. <laughs> uh, and... He's the broadcaster of this team, and uh, the Brooklyn Dodgers, it was Branch Rickey, of course, the guy who uh, infamously uh -oh. signed Jackie Robinson. Uh, his broadcaster, the normal broadcaster, had a medical emergency, called up, mm -hmm. uh, called up Harwell, and made a trade. So they traded a, a catcher, Cliff Dapper, in 42, uh, and uh, I, I guess, a, a, what'd you say, a Bucket of balls as well, a bag of bucket bats. Of balls or, or, or a bat rack or something like that. There was some equipment that went along uh, with Ernie Harwell back the other way. Unbelievable. So things that uh, would probably never happen anymore. Never. Could... Can you imagine Mike Trout being traded for uh, a bullpen pitcher and, and some, some cleats? <laughs> Our, our pal Zach Fish, voice of the Bears, would be the biggest journeyman in the American Hockey League if that was the case. It would be a week. And be yeah. like, All right, see ya. We're, we're done here. Goodbye. So <laughs> We need more clear tape in the locker room. Fish, you're <laughs> heading up to Adirondack. <laughs> but it's just uh, – it, it's great, uh, you know, with uh, so many awesome broadcasters that you grow mm -hmm. up listening to. And, you know, nowadays there's certainly no shortage uh, – when the news came out that you accepted this role in Seattle, it has yeah. turned into a media tour for you. Just a, a frenzy of people reaching out from all over. Any mm. names from the sports broadcasting world that you heard from where you thought to yourself, wow, this is like, this is pretty damn cool. You know, there have been so many. And, and, and that's the one thing that I've noticed through this whole process is that Everybody has been so kind and warm and welcoming and congratulatory. And, and for me, and I mean, you know, the old adage that there's no cheering in the press box. So, you know, I've been very fortunate. You know, I, I've been blessed in my life. I've met Wayne Gretzky before. I've met uh, Mark Messier. I've been able to meet a lot of coaches and, and things like that throughout my career, just in passing and, and professionally and whatnot. But when you have... Uh, uh, these voices in the NHL, guys that I've been listening to since, you know, I was in high school, guys that I've been listening to that have really helped develop my style, reaching out to you. I mean, I, I had um, uh, Jack Michaels, the Edmonton Oilers, reached out to me. Obviously, J John Walton with the Capitals reached out to me. John Weideman with the Blackhawks reached out to me. Um, the, the, the radio announcer uh, in, uh, in Philadelphia reached out to me as well. A number of Hockey Night in Canada people, Elliot Friedman, David Amber, Anson Carter has all reached out to me. Anson Carter was my favorite hockey player growing up, and I was able to join him for an interview uh, as a part of a show on MSG 
last week. So it's been really cool to, to, to talk to all these people and meet all these folks. And it's also been kind of hard to, to keep a lid on that fandom because I, I just want to, you know, oh my God, I'm your biggest fan. Like you, you still kind of have that, um, that fandom within you. But I mean, everyone has been so great and, and, and it makes you realize that, you know, these guys are just as human and just as down to earth as you are. And, you know, they were in this position. And I look at Josh Bogorod and Jack Michaels in particular. They came from the ECHL straight up to the National Hockey League as well, both through Alaska. Um, Steve Mears, who was with the Pittsburgh Penguins, he came from the Central Hockey League down in Shreveport uh, into uh, the Islanders organization, I believe, at the time. So, you know, there, it's few and far between the number of guys who make that jump um, to the NHL, but everyone who's reached out to me has been so welcoming and kind. I've gotten so many numbers and text messages uh, saying, if you need anything, don't hesitate to reach out. So it, it's been really, really cool. Um, I think one of the more interesting people that have reached out to me, and, and I mean interesting in a really good way, is um, Adam Amin, who is the new broadcaster for the Chicago Bulls, and both of the um, Baltimore Oriole baseball team broadcasters have reached out to me and, and congratulated me and, and welcoming me. So this is it's crossing all sports, and, and it's really, really humbling and, and really such an honor to be able to, to be welcomed by so many great people. That's awesome. And you mentioned uh, some of the development leagues uh, and where different broadcasters have came from. Uh, it's really remarkable where not only the ECHL, but the USHL, the NOL, uh, so many lower level leagues, even the SPHL. Um, it's, it's been remarkable with how broadcasters have been developing from those lower leagues. From your perspective, what is it about a league like the USHL right now that is just churning out so many high-quality broadcasters who are currently climbing through the ranks and are whether in the AHL or stepping into the NHL? You know, I, I think as the, as the product on the ice gets better, I think just front offices and your organization gets better as a whole. I mean, it, it's a trickle down effect and, and you look at the USHL having worked in the league office and, and having worked for the Youngstown Phantoms you know I, I am fully on the USHL the, the the American development model train for USA hockey and you know I, I'll put the USHL up against CHL any day of the week um, but the players that have come out of the USHL have been so high-end so skilled um, I believe it was a couple of years ago there were more USHL ties drafted in the entry draft than any other league for that year um, you have a league where 90 at least when I was there I don't know if that number's gone up 98 percent of USHL players received division one college hockey scholarships so they're going to Michigan Penn State Notre Dame uh, North Dakota Boston College all of these great programs around the country so as your players get better uh, the skill is better and, and the broadcasting gets better. And I mean, right now in the ECHL, you have David Fine, you have Colin Shuck, you have um, Jared Shaffron, 
Uh, you have Dan Corcoran. I mean, I'm sure I'm missing a couple of other ones who've come from the USHL. You have a number of uh, North American League broadcasters as well from that junior league. Looking at the American Hockey League, Zach Fish has climbed the ladder. I mean, he's gone from St. Cloud State to Dubuque to South Carolina, and, and now he's the voice of the Hershey Bears. And I think sooner rather than later, we're going to be seeing him in an NHL press box as well. So I, I think as, as the, the talent – excuse me, the talent has developed in the league. Uh, you're only going to get better broadcasters, better coaching. Um, you know, look at John Robleski, who was just named the head coach uh, for the Ontario Reign. Uh, when I was in the USHL, he was the NTDP under-17 coach. So, um, you know, the league has really come a long way in terms of developing players, and I think that only leads to a development of your front office and of your hockey ops as well. Yeah, and it's a great point because, I mean, from just a player perspective, how many times now are you seeing players from top NCAA Division One programs yeah. who, when they then earn their shot in the NHL? It's a seamless transition with their yeah. play. So that can only tell you that the quality of play in the NCAA has gone through the roof. Uh, and, yeah. I mean, I, I think a great testament to that is I love the uh, – Boxing Day is like a holiday for me because it's the beginning of the World Juniors Championship every year, the best U-20 tournament in the world. And whenever you have the Canadians primarily built out of your top CHL players go against the Americans, primarily an NCAA all-star team in a sense, that's just a great measuring stick where you can see where NCAA hockey is and USA hockey in general and its ties uh, down to uh, Tier 1 and Tier 2 juniors. So it's great to see the quality of hockey really growing uh, in the U.S. And then also just how it, it leads to uh, better and better broadcasting. Uh, yeah. I wanted to touch on, so your upbringing, going back to that. So how did you get into hockey? Because you mentioned that the Tigers for you were mm -hmm. number one for you in terms of the, of the sport that you followed. So how did you start getting into hockey, and at, at what point in your life did it really start to become a religion for you? So um, I got into hockey in the third grade. Um, I went to uh, a school where most of my classmates were either hockey fans or they played hockey. Um, I was a Red Wings fan just by default because they were the hometown team and they were winning. So that's all I needed. Um, and I actually, I went home one night and I was watching a Red Wings game and they were playing the Edmonton Oilers. And I saw Mike Greer and George The Rock on the same team. So for me, seeing two black players at the highest level performing well, I mean, that was a massive inspiration to me. I was running throughout the house like, mom, mom, there's, there's two black guys on the Oilers. There's people who look like me playing hockey. So it was really, really cool. And it also let me know, and it told me that there is a place in this game for me. Um, hockey, you know, historically has been considered a predominantly white sport, the old boys club, whatever you want to call it. Um, but it let me know that I can be a hockey fan as a black person. Hockey is a sport that accepts my, my, my people, people who look like me. So that is, that's what did it for me. So I became a hockey fan and, and then, um, I was always a hockey fan growing up, but I didn't really know that 
hockey broadcasting was going to be the career path until I got to college. Um, when I was growing up, I knew that I wanted to work in sports. I just didn't know what I wanted to do. So um, I didn't know that even though I loved listening to Ernie Harwell and, and some of the great play-by-play -play guys, I didn't know that was an option. I didn't know how you became a play-by-play -play announcer. Um, I was going to be Stuart Scott on SportsCenter. I, I was convinced that at 15 years old, I was going to take over for him at my 16th birthday. Like I was, I would sit and watch SportsCenter, and I would, uh, you know, I, I would mock and 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 you know, repeat after him. And you know, as cool as the other side of the, I would do my own SportsCenter highlights uh, with the TV down. Um, when Stuart Scott was on. So it wasn't until I got to college and, and I did my first game for Bowling Green that I realized that hockey was going to be the career path and it was going to be uh, the basket that I put all the eggs in. So how did you decide on Bowling Green? What was the, uh, what stood out about that school? So, like I said, I knew that I wanted to work in sports. Um, I just didn't know what I wanted to do. And I think I wanted the most options. So I wanted to go to a school that had all four major sports, basketball, baseball, uh, football, and hockey at the division one level. So um, I applied to a few schools in state of Michigan. I applied to a few schools out of state, but you know, whenever I started to, to decide and, and, and to, to narrow my list down, Bowling Green kept coming up and they kept coming up at the top of my list of things that I wanted. At the time, I was going to major in broadcast journalism. Um, I was going to get my minor in German. Uh, I took German in high school and I thought I was going to maybe work for the UN one day. I don't know. So I, um, did you speak I, I, fluent yeah. German? Did you speak German fluently? A little bit. I still remember a little bit of German. Like I'm not, I'm nowhere near fluent. And, and I think, uh, much to my family's chagrin, I think they wanted me to keep up with it a little bit better than I did. I took a few courses in college, but um, I, I, I can, if you were to drop me off in the middle of Germany, I could probably get by for a couple of days before I, you know, start losing it. But uh, I, I can still speak a little bit, ein bisschen Deutsch, a little bit of German. Yeah, that's funny because um, I was a French minor for about six weeks in college because okay. there was the motion, uh, some like preconceived motion that, well, if you want to work in hockey, you should learn French. But I, okay. I learned I'm way too old to learn a damn language. And that, uh, that went by <laughs> relatively quick. Yeah, that's awesome. But yeah, no, so, uh, but yeah, BG was an easy choice. You know, they had all the opportunities. And, and, you know, unbeknownst to me at the time, I never would have had the opportunity that I had if I had to go on to Bowling Green. Um, you're a Division One school. You're able to broadcast Division One athletics. I got to volunteer in our sports information office, so I got a PR uh, crash course. Um, you know, I, I got all of those things that I would ultimately need um, for my career, and I don't think I was going to get that anywhere else. I mean, you look at some of the bigger schools, obviously, you know, Michigan and, and Ohio State and Boston, the college, like those are sexier schools. I get it. But, you know, when you're going up against 60,000 people um, and, and everybody there is a sports fan, you know, it, it can be kind of tough. So Bowling Green, I think, was big enough that I was able to get that college experience. I was able to be able to, to live on my own and, and, and to grow as a person. But I was also able to get that professional experience that has ultimately led me here today. You mentioned PR, you mentioned sports information, and I think perhaps one of the biggest misconceptions out there in terms of what you do for a living is that people seem to think 
you show up, you broadcast, you leave, and that's all you do. You are strictly a broadcaster where that could not be further from the truth. So yeah. from your end, learning the PR side of it, uh, learning all the different hats you've had to wear, uh, how essential was learning all of that to eventually get to where you want to go and to where you are now? It, it was essential. I mean, it, it was it was mandatory. It was necessary. It was required. Twenty um, percent of my job is play by play. I'm also in charge of our PR, our marketing. I help on our marketing team. Um, I do our team services, travel, hotels, meals, buses, flights, things like that. A lot of my colleagues are responsible for sales. I did sales when I was in Youngstown. Um, you know, I've been the mascot before. So you, minor league sports, it, you need to be a jack of all trades, a Swiss army knife, whatever the case may be. It, it is a true next man up mentality. And I'll tell you a story. Um, out of college, I was applying for a job uh, with an ECHL team. Um, and I was in the final two. I believe I was like, it was between me and another guy. Actually, the guy is still there. It's the Bakersfield Condors. He actually uh, is still there, Ryan Holt, um, in the AHL now. So I applied for the job, and, and I guess it was neck and neck. And um, the person that I, I was speaking with, he said, you know what? You both are, are very talented. You both are really good broadcasters. And, and he told me flat out, he said, listen, you know, uh, he's got the PR experience. He knows how to run a press department. He knows how to manage a website. He can write a press, which was all true. I, I mean, th these were all things that, you know, he, he wasn't telling me anything that I didn't know already. But that's when I realized that, oh, wow, th there is more to this industry than just showing up. Because at the time, I was 20 two, 23, something like that. So I was still pretty young. Um, I went to the USHL league office where I got a PR uh, experience there. I got social media experience, digital media experience. I go to Youngstown. We had a great team that year. And ultimately Kyle Connor ended up being a top 10 draft pick. So I got to, to deal with TSN and the hockey news and all of the, 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 the major um publications surrounding hockey and junior hockey and prospects. So I, I got some experience dealing with, um, you know, the, the Elliot Friedman's of the world and, and, and things like that. And then I come to Cincinnati where you're in a major league market where we play right next door to the Reds. We're right down the street from the Bengals. You have two division one basketball programs in Cincinnati and Xavier, a brand new MLS franchise. And then about two hours down the road, you have Louisville and Kentucky basketball. So we were right in the middle. Oh, and not to mention high school football in Ohio is king around here. So, you know, being able to, to do PR and, and to, to keep your team your minor league hockey team at the forefront of people's minds in a place like this was huge. I was able to learn how to navigate the media landscape and taking nothing away from my colleagues in smaller markets and, and, and things like that. There's something different when you're doing PR and when you're trying to navigate a city like Cincinnati and we'll just say Hershey because we're talking to you here, but like bigger cities, bigger markets, bigger teams, I think all of that played a role in helping develop my, my PR acumen. And, and honestly, I've grown a real passion for the PR side of things in addition to being a broadcaster as well. 
Yeah, I mean, I, I'm the same way where I, and Fish knows this, I'm, I consider myself more of a PR guy than a broadcaster ever. Mm. Uh, if I ever am fortunate enough to make it to the top, uh, you know, the NHL, I would want it to be as a PR guy, quite frankly. Uh, talk a little bit about, so just going off of lear uh, learning experiences, uh, when you are a broadcaster for a mm. team for the first time, so maybe you transition from the collegiate level and now you're in the USHL, um, I, I think there's a misconception of when you're a broadcaster, you're also an analyst and you perhaps don't think about, well, you're a part of the team. So there are certain things that maybe you, you can't be overly critical if one of your guys turns the puck over or if, uh, if your coach makes a questionable decision like calling his timeout too early or not using his timeout or pulling the goaltender with seven minutes remaining in a hockey game where <laughs> you can, uh, you know, perhaps when you're for a network, you can go into more detail and be a bit more critical. Mm -hmm. But for a team, you need to learn that there is a line where you can like call a spade a spade when it's completely obvious, mm -hmm. but you can't be over the top. For you, talk about your process and kind of learning that line in a sense as you grew uh, and climbed through the ranks. Yeah, I mean, I, I think a lot of it is trial by error. I mean, there was plenty of times when I may have been a little too overly critical and, and things like that, but I've always had good mentors. I've always had good people behind me to, to say, you know what, I listened to your last game, probably shouldn't have said this, or I've been doing this now for a while. I've criticized A, B, or C. Let's not do that again. So um, I, I think a lot of it goes to the people that have helped me in the past. But also, I, I'm a big believer in, in dressing for the job that you want, not necessarily the job that you have. Um, there are a lot of broadcasters who are the voices of their teams, and they are going to stay the voices of their teams. There are guys in this league. There are guys in the USHL. There are guys in the AHL who – are happy and you know they found their home they found their spot they're not leaving and you can afford to be a little bit more on the line you can afford to be a little bit more of a homer things like that and there's nothing wrong with that i don't think there's anything wrong with that but for me i've always believed in in calling a semi-neutral game obviously you know for the Cyclones, they are signing my paycheck. I, I do speak to and speak for the Cyclones fan base. So, of course, I'm going to be a, a little bit more Cincinnati-leaning. But I'm also never afraid if there is just an egregious error or, or a decision that I may not agree with. I'm not going to berate the coach and say, you know, why didn't Matt Thomas do that? But, you know, it, there may be a, a, a couple of questions that are asked, but it's always done tastefully. It's always done professionally. Um, and it's something where I think if you truly do know the game um, and if you have that good of a relationship with your team, with your fan base, they will respect you and they'll appreciate you for it. I think a sign of a good broadcaster is being able to be critical of your team, but more in a constructive way, not a destructive way. So that's one thing that I try to do. Um, but yeah, I'm, I, and I'm also not afraid. I mean, if another team is winning eight to one, what are you going to say? Like, oh, those are eight close goals. I don't know about that one. No. And I know plenty of guys who are like that. You know, their team, like the other team never, ever wins a game. It was 
oh, you know, we just didn't play our best tonight, or there was a questionable call. You got beat 10 nothing. okay? You lost. Like, it, they, they, they handily beat you. So um, that, that's one thing that, that I try to do is, is, is I try to be, you know, semi-neutral, but also, you know, leaning, obviously, towards the, the team that I work with. When you're a broadcaster, you're, in a sense, a face or a voice of your team. Mm-hmm. When you get to Cincinnati, so you're into pro hockey now, ECHL, a good step up from the USHL, and you mentioned what a, a great market Cincinnati is. Yeah. In your mind going into it, any pressure, any thought process of how do I win the fan base or – Never even a thought in terms of how do I get the fans behind me so they're not on the Facebook page ripping me a new one after opening night? Well, so I've always been the person who um, I love our fans. I think our fans are great. Um, I know that I'm not everyone's cup of tea. That's fine. That's okay. You're not going to be able to please everybody. Um, So for me, um, I just, and this is going to sound so cliche and I apologize. I'm just going to go out there and call my game, you know, to, 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 to take a line from the, uh, play my game, get pucks in, chip pucks out. Uh, no, I, but I, I think obviously there, there is a little bit of a wanting to get the fans on your side. And there is a wanting to, to have the fans appreciate you. Um, this position here in Cincinnati is so public because you are on TV all the time. You are the MC for events. You, you are at all of the season ticket holder events and the functions and things like that. So I, I think that's where the PR, that is where you're, you're working the room skills come in. Um, and I think I do that better than anyone. Um, you know, I, I, I love to be around people. I love to be Mr. Hey, how you doing? Like that, that, that's who I am. So, um, you know, being able to do that, I think was huge. Um, and also, I mean, I, I think that I'm, I'm a good broadcaster as well. I'm not trying to pump my own tires here, but you know, I, I think that I, I do my job well. So, um, but the guy that I replaced, uh, Nick Brunker was phenomenal at what he did. He was a good broadcaster. He was a great PR person. He was a great digital person. He really elevated um, the Cyclones in, in terms of what we did. So trying to, to carry on his torch and that legacy, obviously, what was a tall task. And, and, you know, whenever you're coming in, replacing a guy who was so beloved and who was so liked, yeah, there is a lot of pressure. But um, at the end of the day, it's now your show. So, you know, I, if not for Nick Brunker, he helped me out quite a bit and, and I was able to call him and email him and, and he really helped me get set, uh, settled in that summer before I started. But, you know, anytime you, you have to come in and replace someone as talented as he was and even down the line, I mean, I, I look at a guy like Brendan Burke, who's at the Islander system and or with New York Islanders now, and he had to, to replace a legend up there and, and um, you know, Alex Faust in, in LA having to replace a legend and a lot of these guys who go into these situations having to replace people you know there is a bit of nerves there is a bit of well he did it this way does this mean I have to do it that way but you find your own voice and I think ultimately if people realize that you can bring a different element to the broadcast to 
your PR to whatever the job is, um, they'll respect you for it. And I think that I've earned the respect of, of our fan base here in Cincinnati. And I hope I've earned the respect of our fan base here in Cincinnati. And um, it's something that uh, I'm never going to forget all the great things that they've done for me here and, and how they've treated me here in Cincinnati. I feel bad for whoever has to replace uh, your role in Cincinnati because they have their work cut out for them. Uh, <laughs> You're kind. You're too kind. When it, it comes to, you know, we could talk until we're blue in the face about the outside noise. And mm-hmm. when you're on the receiving end of, of criticism and, you know, I, I'm a genuine believer uh, of no matter what you do in your life, you could be a teacher, you can be an accountant, you can be a broadcaster. There is always yeah. going to be at least one person who thinks you suck. That, and mm-hmm. that's just the, the reality of it. Um, it's so much easier said than done, uh, I think, for, for some and, you know, for many to, to be able to block out all that noise. Mm-hmm. What do you think is the key to being able to successfully do that? You know what, man? I'm not going to lie to you. I, I'm a glutton for punishment. I, I sometimes I, I like to dive into the comment section. I, I feed off of the negative energy because it makes me want to prove you wrong. And, and shut you up that much more. So um, I've never been a person who really lets comments get to me, not to say that some haven't, you know, obviously um, we want to be liked and we want to be appreciated and it's, it's just human nature. And when you're passionate about your job and, and when you're passionate about what you do, you want to do a good job and you want people to, to like the job that you do. But like you said, you're not going to be able to appease everybody. There's going to be, there's always detractors. Um, I, I love the line um, in Batman, the dark Knight. Some people just want to watch the world burn. Like some people just can't be happy and that's okay. Um, I go about my business and I listen to the people who matter. I listen to my bosses. I listen to my colleagues. I listen to my mentors that I've been able to, to pick the brains of in the NHL and across the sports world and, and things like that. I listen to my family, my fiance. Um, you know, I listen to the ones who are important to me um, because ultimately the, the loudest people in the room are oftentimes the smallest percentage of the people in the room. So um, I don't let it bother me. Uh, a couple of times, a few comments have kind of gotten under my skin a bit. But other, other than that, it's something that I don't take a lot of stock, stock into. Um, because like I said, at the end of the day, you're not doing this job. I am. So um, I, I, that's all I can really say. That's all I can really say is that this is uh, – you know, I, I, someone somewhere had faith in me and they had trust in me and they believed that I could do this job and, and I'm still here. So uh, I must be doing something right. So it, it's been well documented uh, across your media tour, uh, the, the process uh, of Seattle reaching out. Yeah. Uh, so give us the, the version of, if you remember where you were, what you were doing, uh, even what you were wearing, if you remember when you were contacted, 
uh, by Seattle and the gears start to turn in your head where it's like, oh shit, this could become my new reality very soon. <laughs> um, so it, it, it was back in February. Uh, we were, this was all pre-COVID, PC, um, or BC, before COVID. So uh, um, it was, I was in my office and, and it, was, it was a game week. We were getting ready to go off to some godforsaken town again. I don't know. So we're getting ready for another weekend and, and I'm sitting in my, my office and getting some game notes ready and all that. And I see an email come across and uh, it, it, it was from Todd Lywicki, who was the CEO, who was the CEO of, the, of the Kraken. And um, I, I opened it and I read it and, you know, obviously your, your eyes get big and, and you're like, Oh, is this uh is this real? I'm not, I'm not going to lie. I've told him this story. I've told folks this story. I hope he doesn't, hope he doesn't mind me keep saying this, but I, I thought it was spam for a second. Like we our hockey op staff, you know, we, we love playing pranks on each other. Um, so I'm thinking, you know, one of our equipment, our equipment guy or our, one of our players or somebody in the front office playing a joke on me. I'm like, all right, guys, it's not even funny. It's not even creative. Good job. Like, you know what I mean? So, um, I followed the, I followed the email and I responded because, you know, I, I, I would feel like a complete idiot if I took that approach and just hit the delete button. So, um, it was actually Todd. So we, um, we emailed, we set up a phone call. Um, you know, he, he read an article about me that Ryan Clark did for the athletic and, and he was really, uh, inspired by my story and, and wanted to know more about me. And, uh, you know, was, was interested to know if I would like to be, if I, if I wanted to be a part of what they were building and obviously I was, so we kept in touch and, and then COVID hits and the whole world kind of gets twisted on its head, but he emails me back in May. Um, and he says, you know, I, I know the whole world's kind of gone crazy a bit, but we're still building. We're still moving toward 21. And, and I want to know if you're still interested in a position here. So, of course, I was. Um, and, you know, a few Zoom interviews, a couple of phone calls, and then a trip out to Seattle later. Um, I, I was called a few couple of weeks after the 4th of July and offered the job. And um, my, my fiance was off work that day. So I knew that they'd be calling at some point that day. So we just had, we were sitting on the couch. I think we were watching Love It or List It. And I just had the phone sitting right on the table. And like every 10 minutes I looked down, I turned the ringer all the way up. It was on the charger. Like I, I X'd out of all the apps on the phone. Like I made sure that there was nothing in the way of getting this phone call. Uh, and the phone rang and, and it was uh, Katie Townsend who is, is their uh, marketing communications director out there. Uh, and, and she offered me the position and um, it was great. My, my fiance was crying. I was, I was in tears and I was, jumping up and down. I was laughing. I was screaming. I was just so happy uh, to, to see this 13-year journey that I've been on uh, finally, you know, get to the NHL. Probably what I would imagine uh, just would be the, the most enjoyable phone conversations you would ever have the privilege to make yeah. with so many people that were so close to you and were so influential uh, during your upbringing, then to be able to finally give them that phone call that you dream about, that you're going to be a broadcaster in the National Hockey League. Uh, mm -hmm. what, what did that mean for you personally? Like, did, did it make all the, 
all the long bus rides, all of a sudden, everything that had maybe sucked in the past, maybe every single setback, all of it just kind of go out the window. Yeah, and, and, and that's what it is too, because you start to look back and you start to reflect on your path and what got you there. And, you know, it's been a long path. There, there's been hundreds of thousands of miles of bus rides and, and, you know, tons of, you know, you can only load the gear into Kalamazoo at four o'clock in the morning so many times in February when you're just like, all right, do I really want to keep doing this? And, and that's okay. That's okay. I mean, I, I, I enjoyed every second that I was in Cincinnati. I enjoyed every second of my time in Youngstown, obviously Bowling Green, but everywhere I've been, you know, it's human nature. It creeps into your head. You know, you get the doubts and, and you start asking yourself, man, do I really want to keep doing this? But you have to look at the process and you have to look at what you've sacrificed, where you've come from, and also and also the ultimate goal. You know, I, I, I know and I've known for a long time that getting to the NHL is, is what I've wanted to do. And I've made a lot of sacrifices personally, professionally, um, to get to this point. And it's all been worth it. It's all been worth it to, to be able to say that, I'm now in the NHL, and now I have something, um, you know, being an NHL broadcaster was the first goal that I ever set for myself as an adult. Um, you know, obviously getting to college was one, but, you know, I remember when I said I'm going to be an NHL broadcaster. That was the first serious, professional, personal goal that I'd ever set for myself. And now to be able to achieve it is – is, is mind-blowing, the, the fact that I was able to see this through until the end. If you had to choose, what do you think is more special? Fulfilling that goal and being a National Hockey League broadcaster or being the first Black National Hockey League broadcaster, is there one that just shines through more than the other for you? I think personally for me, I think personally for me, it, it's it's achieving the goal of getting to the National Hockey League. Um, now, I'll go into this in a second. It's not saying that being the first black broadcaster isn't important. Obviously, it is. But for me, um, knowing that I've worked so hard to, to get to this point, knowing that I've had a passion and I've had a love for what I do, um, I've never worked a day in my life. Uh, th th this, I feel like I'm stealing. Like, th this is fun for me. This is a hobby for me uh, that they pay me for. So, I mean, I I'm the luckiest man in the world. Um, and, and again, to be able to, to go on that journey, you know, it, I've been in some rough spots, but they've all been fun. You know, from living in Chicago, making $27,000 a year before taxes, uh, in the city of Chicago, to moving to Youngstown, to to Cincinnati, and and just all of the stops and all of the sacrifices and all of the struggles that that I that I underwent to get to this point, and just looking back on it, you know, it was a lot of fun, but it was hard, and I think that's the most rewarding part for me is that even though I could have given up multiple times along that road, I came close a couple of times to giving up on that road. Um, even though that, that it got hard at times, I, I was still able to see it through and I was still able to achieve that one thing that I wanted. 
when, so you mentioned earlier, just that feeling, that joy when you're a young kid watching uh, a pro hockey game and mm-hmm. two Edmonton Oilers are black and knowing that you are in a position where there could be a 10 year old boy sitting back in Detroit watching a cracking game, whether it be on TV or seeing a video that you're doing on social media where you're in front of the camera and that boy can then run to, to their mom and say, hey, look, what does that mean for you emotionally that you are able to have the same influence on another person that someone had for you all those years ago? It's, it's, it's indescribable. I mean, um, you know, I, I was that kid who didn't have influences, um, black influences in hockey. Um, so to be able to potentially be that to someone is, is an unbelievable responsibility that I take very, very seriously. Um, I don't think anybody ever intends or sets out to be the trailblazer, but when you are in a position to help inspire people, to help lead and groom and mentor that next generation of, of black hockey broadcaster or journalist, or even just black hockey fan, I, I think you owe it to yourself. You owe it to the sport. You owe it to the culture overall to embrace that and, and, and take that with you. Um, I, met a kid over the summer. His name is Trey Matthews, and, and he is the women's hockey broadcaster um, at Adrian College. And he said that he found out who I was and, and has been inspired by me. And I had no idea who he was. And now we connected and we're talking. I'm actually going to be calling him here in a couple of days, and we're going to go over his demo and, and his play-by-play. And to, to be able to, to do things like that for, for the next group coming up is, I think, more special than getting there yourself. Um, you know, I, I fully don't intend on just saying, well, I got here, I'm, I'm good, you know, good luck everybody else. I, it takes a village. And um, one day, I hope sooner rather than later, I'm gonna be able to sit in an NHL press box and there's gonna be another black broadcaster next to me. And there's gonna be a couple of black writers down the road. There's gonna be a couple of black PR people. There's going to be, um, and, and not just black people, but more women, more, um, more Asians, more Hispanics, more uh, Arabs. It doesn't matter. More people of color, more minorities to really just show that this game is reflective of us as a culture. And I think that the NHL over the past few years has made some strides in, in trying to embrace that racial diversity and, and, and that gender diversity, but there's still a long way to go. Um, but I think hockey as a whole has been taking the proper steps to help us get there. And it's something that, you know, for me to be a part of that wave, to me, for me to be a part of that change is massive. And it's something that I, I'm just so honored to be able to add my name to that list. That's awesome. What do you think is the biggest key to be able to get more of those minorities that you spoke of just exposed and acclimated to this game so we can continue uh, down the road to snowball in a positive way, just more and more eyes and more diversity uh, involved in hockey? You know, I, I think for me, the biggest thing would be to 
continue talking about it and continuing showcasing the diversity that you want. Showing more black faces, showing more women, showing more uh, inner city groups and more minorities playing hockey um, at the junior level, at the NHL level, at the minor league level. I mean, there is so many different um, people of color and so many different groups represented across all leagues that, um, you know, there, there's so many more influences now than what I had back when I was a little kid growing up. So I, I, I think that for, for the NHL, um, that means embracing their, their different voices. Um, I've always been a big believer of, you know, you can have a lot of, of black faces and a lot of minorities on the ice, but when you start adding people into administrative roles, into social roles, PR roles, marketing roles, decision-making roles that can actually uh, um, affect the culture of a team and an organization, that is when you start to have a real process, a progress, I should say. So I think those are some of the big things that I think need to happen. And, and you know, looking at Seattle, I think the Kraken, we as an organization are in the process of putting the NHL on notice. I think the rest of the league on notice, because if you look at the organization, I mean, we're upwards of 40-ish percent of our entire front office are female or people of color. So you have an organization who is really embracing not only the diversity of the city of Seattle and, and building a front office and building a culture that looks like the fan base that they're trying to attract, but they're also trying to build a culture that is reflective of where we want not only our game to go, but our society as well. That's awesome. This has been uh... – it's a great joy for me for this hour to be able to catch up with you and uh, to be able to see you for the first time in almost two years. Uh, yeah. It's been awesome. Uh, I was so, so happy when I saw the news come across that, uh, that you're joining Seattle. And I read somewhere, I can't imagine that first game that you're doing when the Red Wings come to town or you go to Detroit as your homecoming. Uh, oh, yeah. That's a lot of money on the board right there. That's how oh. I would start saving up. <laughs> yep. So uh, again, the uh, obviously the role it, it, with the team is still very very new, um, you know, as it as it relates to play by play or radio, TV analysts, whatever the case may be. Um, but I've I've already told you know the, the the powers that be that whatever my role is, I'm getting on that plane and I'm going to that first game in Detroit. So whatever you're having me do. That one game, I'm doing it from the Motor City. So uh, I'll, I'll pay my own way if I have to. But, yeah, that, that'll, be, that'll be quite a bit of money up on the board for Fitzy that night. Oh, that's awesome. Well, thank you so much for uh, taking the time uh, to join us yeah. uh, today for this podcast. Uh, nothing but uh, the best of luck and best wishes to you. And can't wait to, uh, to hopefully get back on the ice soon uh, in a non-bubble type setting. And, uh, yeah. you know, would love to see hopefully soon if there's a vaccine fans and butts back in seats to, uh, to continue to grow the yeah. greatest game uh, in sports because you can only do so really effectively if you have people actually there at the game. So this has been a mm -hmm. great amount of fun. Once again, thanks so much for joining. Uh, this has been another edition of the That's Hockey podcast presented by Trust PR. 
You can listen to this on Apple Podcasts on demand anytime. Be sure to subscribe. Also online, mattctrust.hockey. You can also watch this if you want to see our two lovely faces as well, in addition to just listening on YouTube anytime. Look at that. You can't argue with that. That's much more than what a mother would love right there. So, <laughs> so for Everett, myself, Matt Trust, so long, everybody. Thank you for tuning in to the That's Hockey podcast presented by Trust PR. Join us for our next show where you can hear the fun, chaotic stories from behind the scenes that make you laugh, shrug your shoulders and say, that's hockey, baby. The That's Hockey podcast presented by Trust PR. Thank you for listening and please have a great day. Keep it